Welcome to The Deep Cut, an almost weekly podcast where we go deeper into Sunday's sermon, plus some other subjects of spiritual and theological interest that may come up from time to time. I'm your host, Derek Swetman, and I'll be joined often by Lindsay Self and some other guests along the way, people like scholars and experts and the stuff that we'll talk about. So, welcome aboard, and I pray these episodes are helpful to you and your ongoing spiritual and theological formation. Let's get into this week's topic. All right, welcome back to our second Deep Cut podcast of the summer. I'm here with Alyssa Elliott. How are you doing? Doing good. Good. Alyssa, you've been coming to our church now since, has it been a year? About end of mid-July last year. Yeah. When I moved here. (laughs) Yep. And you are, I'm going to let you tell us about Mm -hmm. what you're doing and where you came from and all that sort of stuff. So go for it. Cool. Give us a quick uh, summary. I am currently a getting ready to start my second year of the PhD program at Emory. I'm in the religion department, specifically in the historical studies in theology and religion, uh, even more specifically studying Christianity in the like second through seventh century. So about 200 to, no, 100 to 600. I have to do the backwards math of century numbers. Yeah. Um, I... Last May, graduated from Emmanuel Christian Seminary with an MDiv in historical theology, was ordained at a Christian church up there, and then proceeded to move down here and start a PhD. Yep. So, just, you know, simple, easy, normal things to do. All the basic stuff? Yep. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, it's fun. I uh, really like reading reading dead dudes. Reading dead dudes. <laughs> As I like to call it. I read dead people. But you're having to learn a lot of languages too, right? Uh, Yes. So I've been studying Greek for about seven, eight years now uh, since undergrad because I went to a good old Christian college, yep. uh, learned Greek. Then I studied Hebrew in my master's degree and then picked up Syriac, which is like a dialect of Aramaic, which is a dialect of Hebrew, so you know, Hebrew adjacent. Uh, and then this last spring started learning Latin and then this summer learned supposedly how to read German uh, and then I picked up French along the way. How's German going? Terrible. I hate yeah, German. It's tough. It's a rough language. Yeah. You don't ever know where the verb is. <laughs> yeah. What is the connection? It So when my brother did his PhD work, he had to relearn German. Mm-hmm. Is it because some of those old things haven't been translated or? You have to know how to read scholarship. Yeah. So basically 19th, 20th century German universities were all about studying especially biblical studies and the Hebrew Bible. Um, And so you basically have to read a bunch of stuff that wasn't translated into English scholarship-wise. There's some modern stuff that's just written in German. Uh, More modern stuff is written in French and Italian. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I sometimes sit there and think, wow, I have to learn German to read what these, like, precursors to Nazis had to uh, say about church history, which is usually very wrong. Right. Yeah. yeah, when was the heyday for German, like, theologians? Uh, it was probably... Like the Kyle and Dillich, like... Yeah, I mean, Wellhausen, who's the big, like, Hebrew Bible guy, was, I think, the 19th century. Yeah. So, 1800s yeah. was really when that all took off. I also joke, we have to read about a bunch of Germans making up texts that don't exist. <laughs> uh, like, Hugh. <laughs> oh, yeah. That New Testament document that yes. does not exist, but has an entire commentary on it. So more importantly, like the original Indiana Jones. Yeah. Are, they, are yeah. they really that interested in that stuff? Uh, I mean, 
not in the like hardcore Indiana Jones archaeology way, but yeah, very interested yeah. in scholarship. A lot of it came out of Protestantism and the rise of universities. Yep. Uh, so you blame Luther. Luther. For all yeah. Of it. It's all Luther's fault. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of things, I guess, would be. But uh, okay, cool. Nice sidetrack on German stuff. Yep. I also read French, which is fun. A bunch of French Catholic scholars uh, still produce critical editions of ancient Christian texts, which is amazing, except it's all in either Greek or French. <laughs> or Latin and French or Syriac and French. <laughs> that's that's interesting. Just well, things I do every day. <laughs> I limped through Greek and Hebrew, so I don't have much to say. <laughs> Well, we're talking about worship, and uh, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on was your expertise in, like, we're talking about old Christianity. Yeah, antiquity. Late antiquity. antiquity. And I thought we would start with two things. One would be, um, and I've said this from the stage a couple times here and there, but, like, when Jesus, following the ascension, it wasn't like people built churches. Yeah. They just were still very Jewish. Mm -hmm. um, I think the way I put it sometimes is there were people in synagogue who just felt fortunate to live in the time of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And I think what would be fun to start with is that separation process, which I know is kind of vague. Mm -hmm. um, but anything you know about the, the shift from everybody just still went to synagogue to now we're starting to see Sunday gatherings versus Saturday I know some Christians would do both for a while. Um, and the development of like a Sunday worship, first day of the week kind of thing. Yeah, so we see this happening even in the New Testament documents with Paul. You see in like early worship services, like in the book of Acts, they're going to synagogue, they're getting kicked out. They're, I think it's Acts 4. There's this thing was like, hey, we won't kick you out as long as you like stop talking about this Jesus guy. Right. And they're like, we cannot do that. That's like our entire thing. Please don't make us stop doing that. Actually, we won't. We're just not even going to ask. We're just going to keep doing it. That's right. Um, and so you see like in Paul's journeys, he goes to synagogues first and then he gets kicked out. It always is getting kicked out is the thing. Like the original goal was to stay within this tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, ironically, that... Basically, all of Christian, I guess, reforms in a way are like, we want to stay here. We don't want to schism out and then yeah. insert schism. Um, but you see a lot of that happening in uh, kind of that early period in the first century. And then Jerusalem is destroyed in 70. Uh, and so there's a lot more diasporic communities happening. And at the same time, Christianity spreading across the empire. Yeah. And one thing that's really important when studying like earliest Christianity is that so much of Christian practice was regional and localized. Like they didn't have the like bulletin going around to all the churches and the like, here's our, uh, Christ, our Christ denomination of Judaism. Uh, and these are the, uh, the list of the baptized, the initiated. These are the people in charge who are yeah. good to go. It was very much, we're in Rome, we can maybe send a letter that'll get in three months to people on the other side of yeah. the Mediterranean, but this is what we're doing here, this is what we have, this is what our practice is within this context. Um, so you have all this contextual stuff happening, and then you really start, we don't have a lot of documents is part of the problem. It's part of the difficulty of studying first and second century Christianity is, mo even just studying Judaism in this period, 
we basically have for Judaism, we've got Philo, who is before mm-hmm. Christ, and then you have Josephus, who is after the destruction of mm-hmm. Jerusalem. And that's like it until we get the uh, mission and the town that's starting to get written down. Yeah. And similar things happen with Christianity in that we've got the New Testament documents. We have some other vague. We have uh, these letters from Ignatius uh, on his way to be uh, killed. Be killed. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think if it was beheaded or fed to the lions. I think he was off to get fed to lions. In all I know is he was on a boat. Yeah. Writing. Yep, he was basically writing to all these churches, some like Ephesus. Um, we yep. also see ones that are like mentioned, these churches that we hear from. Um, this is a side note, but it's yeah. so interesting to read those letters because they kind of read like New Testament letters. Exactly, so that's kind of the transition that I joke between studying like what is called like patristics or early Christianity mm-hmm. and the New Testament is we both we both like Ignatius. Um, he's got his letter to the Smyrnians, yep. you know, writing to Smyrna just up the road. <laughs> um, there's so many cities. As a kid, I really thought that you know, I'm reading Revelation and I'm like, Smyrna? Philadelphia? (laughs) When I moved here and someone said, oh, I'm from Smyrna, my first thought was, the place in Asia Minor? Right. Oh, wait, there's a Smyrna in Georgia. We call that Turkey now. Oh, right. Well, I don't ever leave. I don't go past 999 (laughs) in my histories. I told you three dates, three numbers of the date is all I do. Um, But so you start to see these... Uh, groups forming, and you see house churches. I mean, we've got house churches attested in New Testament, and really that's what everything is, these small congregational gatherings, because they don't really fit in synagogue gatherings anymore, and then also we don't really know exactly what synagogue gatherings looked like. Right. And so they differed. really murky in, like, we have minimal text. We've got Ignatius. We've got this really odd document called the Shepherd of Hermas, yeah. which is like these visions and commandments given to this guy. (laughs) So in these early home gatherings, from what I have read through the years, it's kind of a meal thing. Mm -hmm. There's, there's this, and you can see this in, I think it's the Corinthian letter where Paul's talking about the meals, the agape feast or whatever, the love feast. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is a funny little thing that comes up later. <laughs> Just in Mark. Yeah. So, I mean, these early gatherings, they're still kind of maybe going to synagogue on Saturdays, mm-hmm. but they're also meeting in homes mm-hmm. for a meal, which I'm assuming based on, you can see this a little bit in Acts and Corinthians, but like this is a reenactment of sorts of mm-hmm. not just the Last Supper, but Jesus's meal practices. Um, clearly, it didn't take long to to disintegrate because Paul's addressing, yeah. okay, you guys are just eating now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a focus. Yep. And so I'm wondering when, if you know this, but like when these house gatherings began to focus more on kind of what Acts 2 talks about, like reading, mm-hmm. you know, the teachings of the apostles and prayer and communion and all that sort of I stuff. Think really they were doing all of that together with a focus on that meal. Um, if we look at external sources in Roman culture, kind of, of what, like, meal gatherings were, a lot of times they would include, like, readings of texts, like, you gotta read a good book or something like that, reading good poetry, uh, all their favorite uh, Greek things that have been translated into Latin or being in Greek. Yeah. Um, and so they really draw on kind of everything around them in the world. It's all mismatched and throwing it all together into these communal meals that already have some sort of hymns 
songs, psalms being read and sung, and eating together, eating a specific kind of meal. Yeah. Um, a meal that's been blessed. And then also there's, we see in a lot of texts this, like with Stephen in Acts, um, these people who are given this ministry of, they're kind of what we would think of as early Eucharistic ministers of taking care of the widows and also people taking yeah. uh, the Eucharist or food to the poor or those who cannot come. Yeah. And that continues to now. Um, but really we see some of the earliest stuff even in the New Testament is reading usually the Old Testament that we would call it now um, because the New Testament is very ambiguous development till the fourth century. Right. Um, but like reading, uh, talking about the readings, uh, singing some songs, and then eating some food together. So when they're doing readings in these early gatherings, are they, who's, I don't know how you say it, but almost like, are they starting to reinterpret these Old Testament texts in light of Jesus now? Is that what they're doing? Are they I reading mean, backwards? Doing. Yeah, they're reading backwards. Mm -hmm. In a way, I mean, it's reading everything as though it was coming towards Christ. Right. And reading everything that was leading up to Christ after Christ has come. And so we see Paul doing this with re doing his allegorical interpretation in Galatians. Um, we start to see a lot of specific Psalms, especially like Psalm 22, which we hear referenced in, mm -hmm. is that Matthew? Yeah, it's at the crucifixion. Yeah, so, all the gospels yeah. kind of like run together yeah. in my head. It's too early for me. Um, <laughs> but the, like certain Psalms start to get connected and there end up being a lot of like traditioning happening, especially a lot of things are also rooted in what text they have because they don't just have like a big old scroll that has the entire They Bible. don't have the Old Testament. No, like in they, its entirety. One, they have the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. Yeah. Um, and then also, which is also what they were using in synagogues most of the time. But then you also only have whatever you have a copy of. And so certain psalms were more popular than others or certain texts were more popular a lot of isaiah is really uh -huh. popular uh -huh. um, we see that like with luke referencing the isaiah scroll that jesus is reading from um but yeah a lot of it is localized because the christians are kind of at the forefront of the development of the codex so everything is like which is like the first books yeah everything is based on what scrolls you have and what or what's memorized to be read or performed in a way and then letters being read so like paul's letters would be read publicly before the congregations things like that yeah let's switch gears and talk about not just that reading piece but like when are we singing like when's that happening uh what is it there's something in i only know about this because of the like the church of christ acapella church of christ split there's something in i don't remember what part of the new testament that talks about singing like hymns psalms and, and spiritual songs spiritual songs yeah. yeah and no instruments so obviously no instruments yeah um we do have a an external source that i pulled up it's, uh from Pliny the younger he wrote a letter to the emperor trajan yep uh i don't know how many classes i've read this in but it's so many um it's basically the first external source we have referencing christians and let me see if i can find it they, yeah, so in it, one of the things he says, so I'll just read a little quote from it, um, where Pliny is describing to Trajan, he's basically saying, like, hey, what do I do with this? Like, I decided, like, oh, maybe I'll just, like, persecute them and torture them and kill them. That, that'll that work. Should I keep doing this, Trajan? What's up with this? Um, and he says uh, that, let's see, 
says, quote, they maintained, however, that the amount of the fault of error had been this, that it was their habit on a fixed day to assemble before daylight and recite by turns a form of words to Christ as a God, and that they bound themselves with an oath, not for any crime, but to not commit theft, robbery, adultery, etc., etc. Uh, and then he's like, I had forbidden the existence of clubs. They can't be doing this. Um, but essentially, it's all this talking about how, like, they were doing things together. They were reciting stuff together. Yeah. Um, singing to Christ as to a God. Uh, he doesn't know what to do with all of this, but they're meeting before they go to work. Yeah. Um, and gathering together to pray. Um, they are refusing to worship the emperor and the Roman gods, things like that. They're strictly monotheist, which is a very strange thing to be. Yeah. In this era, they're con- they're accused of being atheists. I was going to say, when yeah. does that come along? Is that around this point? That's happening around this. So there, anybody who doesn't believe in the gods is considered an atheist. Or have a temple. Yeah, right? It's weird. Yeah. And so it's like you don't believe in the gods. Like you don't believe in the Roman gods. You don't believe the emperor is a god. Yeah. Like, have you not heard of Augustus Caesar? He's amazing. He made himself a god, which is a whole different thing. Um, but so you see this strange transition of it's connected in a way to some philosophical shifts happening philosophical monotheism in a way of like the one we see in platonism of this era they're talking about the one that created all these things and you see christianity is starting to like at that same time be like we've got one god judaism's got one god judaism had a kind of an exception to the roman policy of religion and usually rome would show up and be like hey we're in charge now you can keep your gods. Uh, you just have to worship ours too. That's fine. Uh, and they would say, I mean, you can, you can resist. But hey, look at what we did over there. Maybe you don't want to resist. Yeah. You get absolutely annihilated. And then when they show up with Judaism, because Judaism is such an old religion, they're like, that's fine. You can keep your one god thing. Yeah. That's weird, but you can keep it, whatever. Then Christians come around and they're like, mm, are you Jewish though? you you got to worship our gods too. Or like, who's your God? And then there's like, is Christ another God? Do you have two gods? Like, what's this whole thing happening? Yeah. Everyone's confused. Pliny is confused. Yeah. It's like, why are they singing to Christ who's a God, but also they only have yeah. one God? They won't worship our gods? What's going on? Yeah. Um, but we, yeah. And we see some singing in Acts. I mean, mm-hmm. Paul and Silas are singing in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, in the reference that you made, there's a couple of... Uh, I think it's like Ephesians and maybe Colossians, like the whole Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Like, clearly they're doing this at some level, but it's not as though they have bands and like. Yeah, it's like singing has always been part of, I guess, like if you connect the Jewish background of Christianity, yeah. singing has always been part of worship services, um, whatever instruments like the Psalms themselves. Uh, it's referred to as the hymn book of the early church. Yep. Kind of like that's what they're singing are the Psalms. And. The Psalms are great. They yeah. are originally written for music, and so that's kind of like singing has always been part of that. They've got it. Yeah, that's good. See, I you music, folks. Music has always <laughs> been part of Christianity. Well, and so many worship songs that we do today are based in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just a line mm-hmm. or a, a few lines here and there, but they're, yeah, they're, they're not just, uh, I mean, some worship songs are, of course, just thought up. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of them are based in scriptures. Somewhere. Always the best ones. Anything from the Churches of Christ, 
those acapella hymns. Yeah. Some of the best. Have you ever been to a Church of Christ service? I have. In, was it uh, good? Arkansas. Because they can go either way because it's all was, acapella. I went to two in Arkansas when I went on a mission trip to go do yard work at a children's home. Yeah. Uh, in Arkansas, as I say. Arkansas. I am from Kansas, so it's Arkansas down there. Um, but the first one we went to was beautiful. It right. was so good. And then we went to another one. It was so Not bad. so good. Yeah. It just depends on who's in there singing. But it just really depends on how good they are at following musical notes and if any if the song leader has a good pitch or not. Yeah. Yeah, the first time I went to one, the song leader like blew into a pitch pipe and everyone found the pitch and then the whole room just started singing and it was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. It was always the smaller congregations that were really good at it. Yeah. Because they can like, they sing. They have to be. Yeah. There's, you can't you hide in the crowd. Hide. And then the big ones are like, oh, that was rough. <laughs> yeah. So Christian worship early is not really... What's the right word? Like, I don't want to use the word like legalized, although yeah, that does come into like play later. Traditions of what they do. Yeah. Less than like, a, all right, this is what we do. If you have to worship like this, that really doesn't even show up until Christianity starts like becoming a formal religion with a hierarchy and structure. Yeah. And becomes legal in the fourth century. And is that post Constantine? Uh, that... It was already happening. So we see an Ignatius reference to a little bit of that. Like, yeah. Uh, bishops, deacons. We see that reference kind of like a structure, like who does what in the congregation. Yeah. Um, but it's not even until Christianity gets big enough to have communication between bishops or people who are overseeing the little individual congregations in the city yeah. that we even see sort of some formalization of what's going on. In the third century in Alexandria in Egypt, the bishop and a teacher who's Fairly, origin is fairly well-known, considering mm-hmm. the fact that he's been formally condemned uh, <laughs> hundreds of years after he died. So, not really fair to him. Yeah. Uh, but he kind of brussel. He wasn't ordained as a presbyter. He was just a, a teacher. And he was preaching, and he kind of rubbed the wrong ways with the bishop, and he ended up going over to Palestine. And there he was ordained as a bishop and did a lot of preaching mm-hmm. and things like that, but... Usually it was like interpersonal things that would cause conflict, not necessarily like there was no structure for church discipline until we start getting the ecumenical councils Yeah, where people are coming in. They're really formalizing structures and things like that. Yeah. Speaking of structure, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, churches today, not all churches, of course, but many churches follow a kind of calendar mm-hmm. of seasons and things like that, which we're actually going to talk about on Sunday uh, in a couple of weeks. But um when does that start happening? Because I know, I mean, I did my master's thesis on the Jewish calendar system mm-hmm. and how it was used as as a means of memory and recall of God's story. You know, you, you see it in Leviticus, like here's the seasons, here's the festivals is what they would call them and do them kind of in this order. And if you put up an annual calendar, you can see all the different and many we've heard of today. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Passover, there's Purim, there's et cetera. Um, but the church seems to adopt that same idea kind of early. But, I mean, I know we were chatting before we started this recording about, like, let's let's fixate the Easter date. Yeah. And even in the... Uh, well, even that caused controversy in the It did. Century. But even, like, when the... The East, it's almost like the church calendar today flows out, flows into and out of Easter. Once that date is set, everything then begins to get set from Advent all the way through. Except and all now the way back everything's around. based on 
you gotta have December 25th has to be Christmas. Yeah, that's like and a whole so, different thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, tell us a little bit about this kind of calendar, how this thing is developing. Yeah, so the calendar really starts out because of the uh, connection between Christ's Passion and Passover. Mm-hmm. And so the endless difficult murky connection between early Christianity and Judaism of, I mean, we have Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit comes. That's a Jewish festival, um, 50 days, 50 days or five weeks. I can't remember. Yeah. Five weeks after Passover is when we have Pentecost. And then that's right after the Ascension. So things are already connected with some of these festivals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they follow the cycle pretty much the same. I think this last year, actually in our days, uh, there was, was it April when Easter was? It was like last year, this past, this earlier this year. Yes, it was, it was April. A, yeah, yeah. Um, it was very funny because I would get the like Emory spiritual life calendar and it was like all the Abrahamic religions were just having a month because we had um, Ramadan was happening and then also Passover was happening and then Eastern and Western Easter was all happening in like the same couple weeks. Like April was just going hard on celebrating and Abrahamic religions were having a great time. <laughs> uh, it was just a big old party. In April. And also some rough things, because, you know, Holy Week is just this general descent down and then Easter. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that started because of that connection to Passover. And then as things start to develop from that, we start seeing the first really big thing, I mean, is the development of Holy Week around leading up to Passover. Um, in the second century, there's a controversy that has a really fun name called the Quarto Deciman Controversy. Yep, I've heard of this. sound real smart. Um, it's basically, do we date, like, do we celebrate Easter on the actual day when Passover falls, no matter what day of the week, or do we celebrate it on the Lord's Day, which for that was Sunday, eventually became Sunday. And that was a big old split. And so, during, I think it was 2020, I saw some post from a big old church somewhere in the U.S., that because the pandemic happened and Easter was canceled, which you can't cancel Easter. That doesn't happen. But Easter services were canceled. And I saw in December that year, there's a church that was having Easter in December. I was like, no, we argued about this in the second century. Right. You can't just move Easter. It wasn't canceled. You just didn't do it the same way. Um, but I thought that was funny. But anyway, I digress from that. And... Easter really was this like, or Pascha as it's called in Eastern churches now, was the big celebration. And it was that uh, week leading up that would commemorate Good Friday and so like the, when Christ was crucified and then the celebration of the Last Supper and the washing of the feet. All the things that we see now in our traditional Holy Week was some of the early developments that mm-hmm. we see in celebrating things. And then in the fourth century, we start to get. Uh, distinct celebration of Christ's birth mm-hmm. called the Theophany. So Basil of Caesarea or Basil, if you want to call him. I like Basil. Like, yeah, like he's great. And so is the spice. Uh, <laughs> you start seeing, we have a sermon from him that is one of our first, if not the first sermon we have that exists today because we've lost a whole bunch of stuff. Mostly because of World War II. It's <laughs> right. how we lost a lot of things, not necessarily through antiquity. Um, sometimes we find stuff tucked in other manuscript pages, but a lot of stuff we lost during the 20th century. Um, but we have a sermon from him that is the 
one of the first sermons on the birth of Christ, and it's called the Theophany. And that was celebrated in January, um, the day that we now in the Western calendar consider Epiphany, mm -hmm. uh, January 6th, which is also a different uh, commemoration in the United States now. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a different epiphany. podcast. Yeah, it's a different episode. Um, but it that was really when the first celebrations were for Christ's birth. And then um, we see later developments, or I guess kind of simultaneously, uh, in we have texts from the Syriac world, so a little bit further east in what is now modern-day Syria. Uh, it's kind of like the outer edge of the Roman Empire. We have these, um, they're called teaching homilies, or they're really just like, they're metrical. Uh, they had like a meter to them in the Syriac tradition of teaching homilies on Lent. So like the great fast that happened before Easter. Um, because Easter was also when the new Christians would be baptized. Easter was when you would like, and still to this day, in more liturgical, like Roman Catholic tradition, you are like, uh, they go around and they sprinkle holy water uh, on the congregation as a remembrance of your baptism. Mm. Um, this big whole people join the church on Easter, that's like the day when these Christians who had been in the catechumenate, which is a fancy way to say learning how to become Christians, right. learning what on earth these people believe, if you, you would go through that, you'll be baptized, and then you would, in some places, so like in 4th century Jerusalem, which at that time was called Aelia Capitolina, um, it was because the Romans had basically leveled the city and then rebuilt it to make it a Roman city, there were more learned lessons that you would go to after you had been baptized. Uh, you would get to learn more about the mysteries of the Eucharist and things like that, because it wasn't until you were baptized and had received the Holy Spirit that you were really ready to. Yeah. So really everything was centered around the celebration of Easter and everything else came from it. Um, and then we get later traditions and developments of things like the ratified liturgical calendar, things like that. Yeah. Whether or not they use Julian or Gregorian calendars. Yeah. That's why I think next year the Eastern Orthodox Easter Pascha is about a month after what we'll celebrate for Easter. The year after that, they're the same day. And that'll be the last time they're on the same day for like 50 years or something like that. Yeah, I have friends that are Orthodox and the dates are different. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can share a little bit about that because you have... That's just like a calendar thing. It, right. They use a different calendar system than we do. They're very that. serious about it yeah. though. It follows... Some of it follows the more... I think it's the lunar calendar. Yeah. I don't know. This is all like, it's all math, really. And yeah. I don't do numbers. I haven't done math since high school. Um, this whole counting thing based on when they're deciding on the date of all this stuff and whether or not they're following a, uh, a Romanized calendar that came later or if they're following a lunar calendar and yeah. more Jewish calendar, things like that. Uh, part of that was just like the split of the Roman Empire and yeah. the Byzantine Empire surviving. And Rome falling, falling to the, I think it was the, I can't remember, one of the Germanic tribes that yeah. came in and just wrecked it. Yeah. So, but that's after my period. <laughs> that's medieval. <laughs> one of the questions, I know we talked about this before we started as well, but like, I think it would be interesting to talk about what is it that we do in our services now mm -hmm. that even remotely mirrors what people were doing in the ancient church i mean kind of everything kind of everything um i think you mentioned earlier uh when you read justin martyr is a christian in rome from the second century 
Um, he was from Palestine, moved to Rome. He's all about philosophy. Um, he has these documents called these apologies. No matter how hard any scholar tries, we don't know what the audience was, really, if he actually wrote it to an emperor and, like, sent it to the emperor, yeah. or if it was just kind of, like, picking up on a genre, things like that. Um, but at the very end of the first apology, we see him describing what Christians do at service. I'd be like, hey, one, he's defending them, and apologies is like a defense, or like, uh, yeah. basically like, hey, we're not, we're not as bad as what you're accusing us of. And in it, he's like, hey, we're not atheists. Uh, we do believe in God. And also, my favorite one is that our agape feast, our love feast, we're not having orgies. Uh, we are right. literally having Eucharist. We are eating together. This is not what you think it is. Uh, but it is kind of this perceived reputation of the uh, debauchery of Christians. So he spends like this whole apology describing like the uh, moral uprightness of Christians and things like that, which is hilarious that he's like, we are not that. We're not going wild. We're not some like Dionysian whatever. We're just eating together and praying. Um, but he talks about, let me see if I can find it. I have it up on my computer. Um, so one, he makes some really fun, um, slights at the Greek gods. He's like, yep, yeah, your guys' gods suck. He's like, Zeus is the worst. Uh, <laughs> general, you know, the Greek gods are full of, uh, immorality and debauchery themselves. We're better than your gods. <laughs> We're doing way better. Um, but it talks about the, I think you mentioned the president in your sermon. Yes. Which is literally like, that's kind of just like the person in charge. Yeah. Uh, it's a really funny Greek word that literally just means like the one who's in charge for the day. Yeah. Uh, which a lot of times at the house churches would be probably the house homeowner, um, whoever's kind of like in charge at the time. Yeah. Um, so he talks about saying, uh, Justin says like, we wash ourselves um, from our impurities, which again has some connection to uh, Jewish practices of ritual washing. Um, and then we come together and we pray for ourselves, for people around us, uh, for the city in which we live, uh, which we see that in Titus, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, saying like, or no, is it a Timothy? I don't know. One of those pastoral epistles where they're like, hey, pray for the people in the city you live. You should pray for a peaceful place to live. And we yeah. do that in our prayers yeah. now. Um, and then it says, we cease from prayer and greet one another with a kiss. And again, it's like, not like you think it is, Romans. <laughs> um, and then uh, partake of bread and wine taken together. And then um, give thanks for them. That's where we get Eucharist from, the Greek word Eucharistio. Uh, it means to give thanks. Mm -hmm. And Eucharist is a thanksgiving. Um, and then all the people say amen uh, afterwards, which is kind of like a, in Hebrew it means let it be, or like so it, be it becomes, yeah, yeah, for Christians of like, a, yes, we affirm, we ratify what you've said, like, good job, amen. You hear it in the, a lot of, I think, southern churches, a big old amen in Southern Baptist. Yeah. Um, I don't know, I've never been to those churches, they kind of scare me. Um, <laughs> but... They give thanks, and then people partake of it, and then people take to those who are not present, this Eucharist. Um, and then they do some readings. Uh, Justin calls the apostles the memoirs, which mm -hmm. we think is probably the Gospels. We don't really know. Again, it's so close. That to, would make sense. Yeah, it's yeah. probably the Gospels. Um, and then we, let's see, what else do you say we do? Uh, we pray, we... Uh, 
give some rites of initiation. Basically, we teach people about what we're doing. Uh, and then we come together and in the cities and in the countryside, do some reading from the memoirs of the apostles, from the prophets, and then someone kind of talks about them and explains them, interprets them, and then pray, more praying. So like basically all the things that we do now in basically any Christian tradition. Yeah, I always wonder yeah. if like someone from those days, if they walked into our church building, would have any clue what was happening. Like enough things are similar. They'd probably be, conf if you like, Forget about the whole time travel technology change. Yeah, wondering how uh, the words are on the wall. Yeah, literally, like, are we in Daniel? There's writing on the wall. Yeah. Um, but they, like, they would recognize the like the things that we're doing. Or if you said like, oh, we're getting ready to partake of Eucharist, they would know what that is. Yeah. We're singing. Yeah. To God. We do the they, Lord's prayer. They're gonna know praying. that. Yeah, they yeah. would know the Lord's prayer. Yeah. Um, and if you say the Nicene Creed, there's enough of that. That it's connected to the early rule of faith, which is another ambiguous thing. Yeah. Of like, we believe in God. We believe in the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe these things about Christ, that he came down, he died, he rose again. And then he ascended into heaven. Like, those are the basics of Christian belief all the way back. Yeah. They would understand yeah. what's going on. And I think in Justin Martyr's piece there, I don't have it in front of me, but I know he talks about like, the end goal is that, you know, they would read from the memoirs, talk about them, so that people would imitate those things in their yeah. life. Mm -hmm. And so, like, church is similar today in that when we preach or whatever, it's about taking what you hear and applying it in some way uh, to your relationships or whatever. So, like, none of that has changed. It's almost like it's interesting that you read something so old as that. It's like, oh, they were doing, like, uh, application points yeah. at some level. I mean, even the Didache, which is this other early... Maybe early, maybe late. It's very hard to say. It's date, hard to know. Uh, because modern po church politics, honestly, is part of the reason why it's hard to date. But, like, it talks about um, the process of baptism, um, the Eucharist, but also a key thing about the Dedicate is the two ways, the way of life and the way of death. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're living into the way of life, you're living into a way that is um, kind of like following in what you're learning in worship. Um, so it's all very much connected outside of the Sunday to the way they're living in the world. Like Justin talks about, uh, and the book of Acts talks about caring for the widows and the orphans and the poor. Like this sense of beneficence is just built in yeah. to Christian worship. Yeah. And then you get people later on towards the end of the fourth century, John Chrysostom, who's like yelling at people for giving all this money and gold to the churches. He was, Or like all having all these houses when there are poor people in your church who don't have food. Yeah. <laughs> or there are just poor people in the city who don't have food. So he's getting onto them for that. That's his big thing. Is like, how dare you do this when all these people are in need? Yeah. Um, he's a good old firebrand kind of preacher. Right. Mm -hmm. In such a cool name. And gets himself kicked out of uh, Constantinople. They're like, hey, he's in Antioch. They're like, hey, will you be bishop? Constantinople's the capital at the time. He's like, I do not want to be bishop of Constantinople. And they're like, we're going to make you bishop anyway. So he gets made bishop. He's like, fine. And he keeps doing what he'd been doing. And they get mad and he gets exiled. Yeah. <laughs> because he rubbed everyone the wrong way. Uh, he's like, I told you, you don't want me here. Because I'm going to yell at you. <laughs> um, we have a few minutes left. I thought it would be interesting to talk about uh, like church architecture I mean, churches have a look to them. Um, this is clearly not from day one. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't remember when 
they first found a, evidence of a church building, uh, maybe church third century, fourth century. And it's yeah. a house church. We think it's probably from the third yeah. century. It's hard. We do have uh, the oldest mosaic, Christian mosaic, the Good Shepherd. We yeah. also have a baptismal mosaic. Um, but that is uh, some of the oldest architecture we have of baptistries. Otherwise, they were meeting in houses. They didn't have like church buildings. Right. Partly because um, they weren't a legal religion and they were sort of keeping a low profile um because like the whole like in a way it's kind of a myth of this massive persecution of like all across the roman empire we're gonna kill you all it was sporadic localized dependent on what the em- who and was emperor, the, the mood of who the leader was governor so like pliny was over in asia minor modern turkey and he was like hey do i keep killing them Trajan's like eh <laughs> when he responds like only if you really feel like you need to. Uh, but then we have North Africa is where some of the most intense persecutions were. We have texts like uh, the mar- the Acts of the Skeleton Martyrs, and then uh, Martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Tertullian. He has this whole thing where only bad emperors kill Christians. He has this whole like moral argument. He's like, no, you're a bad emperor if you're killing us. Yeah. Um, but in other places, so like Origen and Alexandria, he sees his father killed... And there's this whole story of how he was going to run after his father to join him in martyrdom because there's this whole love of, like, and blessing of the martyrs of the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church idea of baptism in blood rather than water. So if you were killed for Christ even before you were baptized, still counts. It's baptism. She got killed for Christ. Yeah. Um, but so, like, origins, the story says his mom hid his clothes and he didn't want to run out naked after his father. Uh, totally apocryphal, but very funny. Um, but then you see he's doing fine in Alexandria as a Christian teacher, and then he uh, is tortured under some persecutions in Palestine and ends up dying from them. Uh, but he wasn't killed in it. That's what they would call in the tradition a confessor. So like Maximus the confessor in mm-hmm. 7th century. Uh, so you see more architecture coming around in the 4th century after 313, uh, which is like the big date, but it's also a big misconception date. That is a lot of times conflated with 381, so mm-hmm. way later. Uh, so 313 is the Edict of Milan put out by Constantine and his co-emperor Licinius. Uh, Constantine, I believe at that time, was the emperor of, I can't remember, Roman Empire split and then later Constantine reunites the Roman Empire into one and becomes sole emperor again. But 313, the edict basically says Christianity is legal mm-hmm. and it is tolerated, which means you can't kill someone for being a Christian anymore. This also means that at that time, building projects start. So Constantine is ostensibly, or like on the face, is a Christian. He has this whole, like, uh, before the, uh, can't remember the battle. This whole, like, the It's water. over like a river and a bridge, and there's yeah, a vision. Yeah, I can't remember the and... name of the river. There's yeah. this whole vision, there's this whole, like, we can't know if he was actually a Christian or not. But he has this whole thing, conversion to Christianity. Yeah. And so it becomes a favored religion at that point because, like, the emperor is affiliated with the religion. If you're a wealthy person, yeah, that's that's kind of nice. We start getting actual cemeteries for Christians, uh, for Christian burials. We start getting people donating large sums of money to build churches. Constantine himself starts all these building projects, starts building a lot of holy sites in the Jerusalem area. Um, so, like, we have the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is still there today. That was originally built for, Constantine built it for his mom, because uh, his mom really liked all these holy sites. He's like, I'm going to build some churches for my mom. <laughs> um, 
But before then, we have Dura Europus, which really all we have, it's like a little house church. Yeah. Um, we have a really interesting church called the Burnt Church of Galilee, which is in the Decapolis region, which I think, is that mentioned in Matthew? Uh, it's like <sighs> 10 cities that were built by yeah. Rome in the Galilee region yeah. around the sea. Um, and so this burnt, it's called the Burnt Church. It's from the like 4th to 6th century, you know, a casual 200-year ambiguity. Um but it has a baptistry that survives. It has mosaics that survive. It's like we have churches kind of all over, but they're not cropping up until later. Yeah. Uh, that's when they're building big cathedrals. That's why they're building big church in Constantinople. Um, Hagia Sophia comes around later, which then after the Byzantine Empire falls has now been turned into a mosque. Uh, but it still has all these beautiful mosaics and iconography in it. Um, but yeah, the like structure of the churches though is pretty standard across. They have if you walk into a Roman Catholic church or so like if you walk into a Roman Catholic church now, the structure of it is very much rooted in traditional church structures that you would find in old churches in Rome or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but like essentially, it's like you got the part where there's the uh, altar for the Eucharist, you've got the part where the congregation sits, you got where the priest sits, all this stuff. you got baptistries, uh, unless you're here, you don't have a baptistry. I know. It's so sad. We're really letting down the early church. That's what they would be confused on if they walked yeah, in. Yeah, where's like, the baptistry? Where's the water? <laughs> yeah. There's a pipe above the stage. You can tell there used to be one there. There's like a water pipe. You can You can see the plumbing up above our stage, but for some reason, it's gone. It's weird. It disapparated. And it was a Baptist church. This was a Baptist church building. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the thing. It's in the name, yeah. It's like a whole thing. Yeah. That's tragic. Yeah. Yeah, so like baptistries were like the key thing. We have the, we have evidence of them all over. Yeah. Um, Like North Africa, Asia Minor. They're kind of like an archaeological, like, oh, look, we found another baptistry. Was it always a face forward thing or were churches sometimes in the round or was it like, I mean, I don't know. That's like all later development stuff. I mean... Yeah. A big thing was facing east. Yes. Um, this goes back to an ancient idea outside. Like a new day, a new sunrise. Like yeah, a... so like the uh, the west generally was just considered like where darkness was and yeah. where um, in Greek concepts that would be like Hades or like the underworld is towards the west and the east is where the sun is rising. Um, it also helped that Jerusalem was east of most places um, and Jerusalem was... Despite the fact that Christianity didn't have like a central location, really, yeah, Jerusalem was a big deal. They did Jesus that in old baptistry baptism practices where they would yeah, face so east the and then stuff, west. You would uh, some of the most like detailed descriptions are you would turn to the west and spit three times at Satan yeah. and condemn Satan, and then you would turn to the east, yeah. turning your back on the devil. Super fun, and then um, in some traditions, you like in one uh, Coptic version of. Uh, an old text that describes kind of the process of these pre-baptismal exorcisms where they're like getting the demons out of people before you go get baptized. Yeah. The Holy Spirit chases the demons out of the person and chases them as they're fleeing west <laughs> and like pursues them and finds them. It's so cool. But only west. Yeah. The yeah. demons go west because they're trying to get home. Right. The Holy Spirit's like, uh-uh, you're coming with me. <laughs> That's funny. Well, cool. I think we've run out of time. Cool. Which is easy to do with this stuff. Yeah, you know, just simple 700 years. Yeah. I think it's great, though, just some of the things that you've highlighted. Um, I do it. I do find comfort in knowing and 
we're not doing things much differently. Yeah, just, just technology. Like, it looks different. And like Christianity was all contextual anyway. That was like the big yeah. thing. It is interesting because like when we, because I had to do a lot of work on this too in school, but like nowhere in the New Testament does it tell you what to do. No, and that's when you whole, gather our whole Stone Campbell problem. Yeah, because we're like we're gonna go back to the Bible and do what it but says. But it there. doesn't tell you and what to do. Doesn't say anything. Yeah, there's no reference to like an order of service. There's yeah. nothing, and like so the um, closest thing we have is the Didache. Yeah, it's like this is how you do church. Yeah, and like just Mark saying this is how we do church. Like, so I think yeah. that there is you know, there is that contextualization built into mm-hmm. the system where there's not like a a script. Yeah, as long as you're doing baptism, celebrating Easter. That's and, right. Celebrating the Lord's Day and eating the Lord's Supper. You're yeah. good to go. And Christianity in general through the centuries has been that way. Like, there's not a look mm-hmm. to it. Like, you can pick out other religions, like, maybe by the way they dress or, you know, how they live or whatever. But it's like, and I feel like this is the, um, is it the Diognetus? Like, I don't know if it's real or not, but like, is that the right name where he talks about... They don't have their own language. They don't have... It's like an apology. Oh, yeah, I can't remember. I think it's the Diognetus. If I'm saying that wrong, I'm going to have to look it up and figure it out. But it's this whole apology letter written to a leader, and it's in defense of the Christian community in the ancient world. And basically he's saying they don't have their own language. Mm-hmm. They don't dress a certain way. Uh, you know, he does mention a few moral characteristics. But in general, they're just normal people. Mm-hmm. And, like, Christianity has this contextualization built into its DNA in a way that like it's everywhere. And it, and you see this in, um, maybe you can sort of intimate this from the the Pentecost story, but it's like Christianity goes into a a host culture Mm -hmm. rather than taking over a culture. And it begins to look like that, Mm -hmm. uh, rather than like renovating a city. Yeah. And like the early Christian mission activity was taking scripture and translating it yeah. into these languages. Yeah. Um, so it's always been a... Got a whole, like, 40-slide PowerPoint on that if you ever <laughs> want to look at it. <laughs> I'd love to. But it's almost like... It's it's like Christianity from its beginnings is saying, we'll come to you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to come to us. Yeah. And then when we come to you, it's not as though... You don't have to look different or sound different. Mm-hmm. We're just going to tell you the story. Yeah, and a lot of, like, people like me who study that, we also have to study Roman history and Roman culture and what the Roman Empire looked like at that time. Yeah. That's what New Testament people do. Because that's the world that they're in. Right. You can only better understand Christianity within its context if you understand the context. Yeah. That's why like I know all of these Roman emperors and like what they're doing, all their all their drama because the Roman emperors are so dramatic. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> the way that the Roman world is set up is key to understanding how Christianity spread, why Christianity looked the way it did. Yeah. What they're doing. Yeah. Why they're doing it. Yeah. Exactly. It's interesting. That's why you gotta know if you wanna understand American Christianity, you gotta understand America's thing. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Is it true? I heard and we'll end with this. Someone told me once like church governance tends to mirror its system of government. Huh. So like the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church feels very Roman. Uh, in America, it's like, yeah, we have we have the Senate and the Congress and the president. And like we kind of have this in church, too, with like certain, you know, certain names of like deacons and elders and presbyters and whatever. Like it seems to mirror and we vote and we do yeah. all these things. It <laughs> seems to take on the nationalism. Yeah, it takes on a little bit of the features. But of Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about Christianity starting out in the Roman Empire is 
studying the Romans, they're so, I think of them as so goofy sometimes because they love structure. Yeah. Everything has a structure to it. I just spent this last spring semester just reading about the way the Romans love to set up their society. Everything has a place. That's why, like, new things like Christianity kind of rattle them. They're like, where does it go? Yeah. We don't know where it goes. Yeah. Like, everything is structured. There's the structure of the empire, of the emperors at the top, and then you have the senators, and then you have these people and those people. And then you also have that same structure goes to the city level. And then it goes to the village level. It goes to the household level. So everything is structured because that's what the Romans love. Yeah. They love things to be orderly proper structure that's why yeah. they had such great roads and yeah. such great architecture because everything was like set up perfectly and so then you look at christianity picking up on that like of course of course, course there's a hierarchy that's the way the world worked for them mm-hmm. that was how the roman empire worked like it wouldn't they wouldn't have considered anything different yeah that's just how things were that's right and that's why churches today for us in a um American context of kind of we want more say for all the people. That's why you see a lot of churches that are more congregationally based. They're voting on who their elders are. They're voting on their deacons. Right. Um, yeah. Well, just they're voting. They're voting on everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's like all you right. have a vote in the church and in the world. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to vote. So. On what? I don't know. We're just voting. <laughs> well, thanks so much for talking. You bet. This will be great. A good tool for people. Say goodbye. Goodbye.